It was like in Jurassic Park where the raptors attack the fence and they get shocked and then they attack a different part of the fence until they find a weak link. It, it feels to me like that's what a lot of the Trump folks are doing. So I do think that's real. I don't I don't hand wave that away. So I think the, the stakes maybe are higher uh, than we've ever seen. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Zach McCrary, a political pollster at Impact Research and the host of the Pro Politics Podcast, where he interviews political consultants and politicians in search of their fun war stories. It was very interesting to hear Zach's own stories and what he thinks about professional politics and professionals in politics. You should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Zach McCrary of Impact Research and the Pro Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Zach, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, Zach McCrary. I'm a pollster. is my is my profession, uh, political pollster on the Democratic side. Although um, people who listen to your podcast uh, certainly know this, but a lot of people think of pollsters and it's what you see in television or the the, the most uh, regular depiction of pollsters is just people who are all about sort of numbers and who's up, who's down. We're really pollsters are the numbers people on races, but are really strategic partners to campaigns. That is our entry point into campaigns is data and numbers, you know, that that uh, we use things like surveys, uh, focus groups as our entry point, but really pollsters are strategic partners. Uh, and so I really enjoy that part of campaigns, mostly work in campaigns uh, to the degree I work in campaigns. It's on the Democratic side, uh, for the most part, with very few exceptions, consulting is a team sport uh, when I'm on the Democratic team and, and happily. So I do, you know, occasionally work with nonprofits or even more occasionally work with, uh, you know, corporate uh, clients that, that I uh, think have something interesting going on. So that's that's my profession, but I, I come to it through a love of, of politics and uh, as, a, as a kid and uh, grade school, I guess, g- developed this unusual interest in politics. Get much closer than you know, pretty much anybody I knew. Much closer than even the adults I knew. I, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. Ultimately moved to Montgomery, Alabama, in a family that was a professional family, but not terribly politically inclined. Was not active in politics. Didn't go to meetings. Was sort of independent uh, uh, minded. Were not. Uh, as I am now, a sort of a professional Democrat, so was not really a partisan growing up, but you know, fell in love with with politics, the stories behind it, the the impact that politics can make on communities and people, and feel very grateful to be able to have made that my profession here now, probably thirty plus years after I started this you know love affair with uh, with what politics is. I listened to an episode from your podcast where you interviewed Michael Barone. And in that, you mentioned reading some of his early almanacs of American politics. And I related to that because I bought them. It was one of the few books that I bought and looked at them in libraries before that and read extensively the short biographies of members of Congress and states and districts that were embedded there. And I I had that same kind of follow politics the way other people follow sports or the way I followed sports, actually, wanting to 
know who the players were and being interested in the demographics of the district or the partisan tilt of a member of Congress or where what their ratings were like from the environmental groups or just who they were. It was interesting what you elicited from him because he's the same type of guy, clearly. The notion that he was aware of where Route 16 started and ended and that that led to something for him, like things like that, I enjoy a lot. I don't know that anybody else I've heard use the, use the construction of the terminus of interstates. I mean, just the fact that I was, you know, again, had the, 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 the chance to talk with him. And within a few minutes, he was telling me, you know, you know, 4,300,212, whatever the population was of the city of Detroit when he was 10 years old. So within a few minutes, he was dropping stuff like that. And I found him, you know, he's, he's developed and he's, he's more conservative minded these days. So I don't know that our politics align. Uh, but he was exactly who I wanted him to be uh, in a lot of ways in talking to him. But yeah, the, the almanac of American politics was extremely, remains extremely important to me, you know, at a professional level and at a personal level. One of my, maybe this comes across a little sad or, or pitiful, but one of my prized possessions is my collection of of uh, of the almanac of American politics going back to the first one that was released in 1972. They released one every two years since then. Uh, and I don't know that I have any sort of collection that's more uh, dear to me. And it really was an important component in my development. I uh, was always interested in politics and you could follow politics. This is pre-internet. And so really political news was hard to come by. You could follow the presidential race in your state. You know, Maybe there would be some coverage of you know governor's races or local races, but it was very difficult to come by. And I remember in uh, eighth grade walking into uh, our library at my public high school in the suburbs of Jackson, Mississippi, and in the reference section, it's a reference book, I found the Almanac of American Politics. I think it would have been the 1998 version. And it was like Dorothy walking from black and white into color uh, because yeah, I was this kid ravenous for information and there's just not much out there about politics and all of a sudden you have long form stories of 435 congressional districts and and all the detail that you laid out 100 senators 50 governors in in one book uh you you, you just my uh my, the ability to learn about politics to understand politics was exponentially expanded uh, in a moment. And it's a reference book and I you know, read it like a narrative. And, and that's not a normal thing to do for anybody, certainly not a kid in junior high. And then the librarian was nice enough to let me actually check it out, which is, you know, not, you're not supposed to be able to check out uh, uh, reference books. And then I uh, would run across, that was a 1998 version. And then at a, a bookstore, a used bookstore, I ran across a 1978 version. It's like, okay, well, this is even this is even cooler in some ways. Here's a whole nother 435 stories, five, uh, uh, 100 senators, 50 governors, and just you know really became a sponge uh, for that. And uh, I, I do think that is what propelled me to want to do this. And I do think now that I'm, since I'm in polling, I do think Michael Barone, the Almanac is all about numbers and election results and presidential election results in a given district. And, you know, a lot of the data you mentioned, the demographics and how long somebody's been in office and the issue group ratings, a Democrat, their rating from the, the Americans for Democratic Action or the Republican ratings from the, the Chamber of Commerce and just sort of putting all of this uh, into my brain and sort of working through it. And if anything, that that gave me much more of a foundation uh, in in politics, understanding politics, thinking about politics, at least the way I do, that maybe some people have from you know growing up in a more political household, or and now it's I think a little a little easier because so much of this stuff is available on the internet. But um, if I wouldn't have stumbled across that that my, the almanac, Michael Barone's almanac, you know, I, I certainly don't think I would have had the, the the career path I have today. You know, you say that it's not a normal thing to do. But I think it is a normal thing to do. I think it's just that different people have different areas that they focus on. Some people might have memorized all of the handguns that were available in 1936. Someone else might, you know, be interested in geography. Someone else, you know, uh, collects Barbie dolls and knows everything about it. Human beings are interested in particular things. Gardeners know about bulbs or you bird watching. Yeah. yeah, this is just like, this is your thing. And it 
And I think it's lovely when you can translate kind of a hobby or an interest into a career. Sometimes you can ruin your, <laughs> your interest in that by overdoing it, by having to do it every day for work. But a lot of times it's a good fit. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I do think, again, I do feel very fortunate that that has been the case. You know, I, I do now, you know, live it and work it and, and eat and, and, and breathe and drink it pretty much 24 seven now, which, you know, occasionally there's a little bit of burnout that you need to re reboot, but, um, you know, incredibly grateful to be able uh, to do this. I was always interested in politics grew up in the deep south you know, really in areas that were you know even then this would have been in the 90s the 2000s republican leaning but as somebody interested in politics and history it always felt to me like you know democrats the progressive minded uh, folks were on the right side of the big questions of civil rights of public education of economic reforms of you know labor and environment so i always gravitated to the, to the democratic side and when i started you know wanting to actually volunteer for campaigns in the late 90s and, you know, starting at the very lowest place you can and doing, you know, putting up signs and, you know, uh, the, the 1998 Alabama governor's race would have been the first one that I worked on in any real capacity. But I do think because I had this love of politics and because I tried not to be obnoxious about it, I was I was cognizant that nobody wants to sort of be around and know it all you know, 16-year-old kid, nobody cares that I knew who the two senators from Hawaii were uh, when I'm working in an Alabama governor's race. But I do think people sort of picked up that I wasn't there volunteering for campaigns because my dad was a donor or because I was doing it for school credit, but because I had a real appreciation and love for it. And then, you know, when they sort of could pick up, I actually had a real uh, understanding, uh, you know, at least the, the, underst the type of understanding that can be gleaned from books about politics that sort of made them pay attention to me and made them want to help me, frankly. And so when I was volunteering on, on races in 1998, fast forward, not too much after that, I'm, you know, have a very uh, you know, entry level, but a paid position in campaigns in 2000 when some of this time I'm in college uh, as well, but really helped me get my, my foot in the door uh, and did different things from, uh, from field to uh, communications until I, I eventually uh, in the two, in 2007 uh, joined up with uh, the firm I'm at now that it's gone through some different names. When I joined it, it was called Anzalone List Research. A guy named John Anzalone had founded it, a polling firm in the mid nineties as of just two or three weeks ago. Our firm is now rebranded the same, same folks, but rebranded as impact research, trying to get away from any specific uh, individuals uh, in the firm against the same people, but wanting to have a little bit longer, uh, a more sort of permanent um, brand that's not tied to any specific individual or two, uh, but, you know, was able to connect with him. And he and I, in the first conversation I had, John Anzalone and I had, he would, he had a similar story of, of, of finding an almanac and absorbing it. And that was his bar trick. He used to tell me, in uh, in college of, you know, betting people a, a pitcher of beer that he could name all 100 senators and things like that. So we, you know, quickly bonded over that. And every now and then we'll still sort of try to stump each other with something not from today's Congress, which I'm actually not super, uh, you know, I know the Democrats. I know I'm, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with today's Congress, but not nearly uh, like I was uh, in the 90s or the 2000s. There's just a lot of sort of generic Republican white guys in Congress now whose who names I couldn't tell you. Uh, but uh, he and I will still uh, will still talk about some of those some of those people and, you know, throw out a piece of trivia to the other to see if we can get it and, and, and joined up with that firm, apprenticed under him and under the firm for, you know, a, a couple of years and, you know, still work on projects jointly with John Anzalone and other my my colleagues now partners, uh, but was able to you know, dig into polling uh, learn polling and really develop my own approach and book of business that I've been sinking my teeth into for 15, 16 years at this point. There were so many things I was thinking about as you were talking about that. One of them is having that similar interest. One of the things I did was create a bunch of time plots, which were histories of the U.S. House and the Supreme Court and the Senate. In the Senate, you can actually see the changes kind of visually over time, the House one too. And that same kind of interest in the data expressed in a different way than going into polling. Um, 
I noticed that you did a undergrad and a master's in political science at University of Alabama. Um, a lot of pollsters nowadays will go on through a PhD and worry a lot about the methodology. When I've talked to young political folks that are similarly obsessed, I've often suggested they major in something else, mainly because I think they will inevitably learn about politics because of that interest. And maybe it, it would serve them to, to pick up something along the way. But what do you think about that major and how far you took it? as it applies to your career. Yeah, I think I think that what you laid out is is good advice uh, frankly. I went through a phase where I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, knew I loved politics and flirted with, you know, wanting to pursue a, a PhD in more academic background. Um, you know, frankly by the time I was in that master's program, I think probably I um, knew that wasn't quite what I was looking for but really was used it almost as sort of a a way station to try to figure out by myself another year or two to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. I do talk to a lot of, of people, younger people in college or right out of college. I do think from compared to where I started uh, looking at polling in the mid-aughts to where it is now, methodology is much more important. Big data is more important. Analytics is more important. So I do think an academic background uh, is, is more important now than it was when I started. Uh, so I do think there is value in that. I don't think I got a ton of value out of um, you know having a master's degree in political science. The skills beyond that technical expertise, it's mostly it's about um, you know writing, learning to write, learning to speak, going out of your way to take public speaking courses uh, is, is the advice I give uh, people. Uh, finding some sort of major or coursework where you're going to have to do a lot of writing, I think sort of learning how to be a better writer, learning how to be a better speaker, to get comfort uh, with all those things is is much more important than the actual content uh, that I learned, frankly. As somebody who's you know been involved in hiring people and going through processes, I do think it does separate people who have a really a good ability uh, to write clearly, to write concisely. A lot of people can sort of crank out a pretty good you know, polling deck that's 50 slides. A lot of work goes into it, but there's a lot of people who can do that. It's much tougher to write a really smart, short, one or two page memo that really is distilling what people need to know. And I, I frankly think that's probably the case for uh, verbal communications uh, as well. And so I think those are skills that I would advise people uh, to pick up. But I, I certainly don't advise people uh, to go uh, to get additional schooling uh, with the caveat, if you really want to be able to sink your teeth into some of this big data questions, I think a lot of people are more autodidacts to some degree uh, on that as well and sort of learn that themselves, maybe without the imprimatur of a of a big university. But I, I do think when I started, there wasn't a ton that uh, a, a college you know, could teach me or my college taught me about being a pollster, being a political consultant, whereas I do think there's more technical elements now to learn on the data side than there was 20 years ago. I'm not confident that the political consultant is viewed in a highly positive light by the general populace. It might have sort of the stigma of like an undertaker or a uh, used car salesman. But you clearly like it, love it as work, and even celebrate other people who do it through your ProPolitics podcast. What is it that makes it a profession that you admire and enjoy? Yeah, I mean, you know, in my mind, politics is all about progress. Almost everything that I can think of, the way I think about the world, that where progress has been made is due to the political uh, process. You know, you know, big questions, uh, civil rights and public education and environmental protections and getting rid of child labor. You know, I, and if you know, politics broadly, uh, I think, are the driving force behind that. And even you know, small smaller questions about, you know, the, the public libraries being funded and, you know, safe streets in your neighborhood 
uh, politics have a role to play there. So the way I think about the world, the way I think about history, you know, politics is is inextricably linked to good outcomes, good public policy that help people. And when and when we have bad public policy, you know, the Civil War and you know the you know the, the, a lot of the tragedies that, that we that you can look at. Uh, again, not historian Hitler's rise to to um, to in, in in Germany, uh, you know, a breakdown of the political system uh, in in Germany, where you know, as I understand it, a lot of the the other German parties, you know, didn't you know d- didn't take him seriously, and there were there were political things that could have been done to stop him, that things that could have been done to short to circumvent the the Civil War, uh, things that could have been done to 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 bring an end to slavery uh, without uh, a, a bloodshed, perhaps. Um, but I, I do think that is, is incredibly important, and and the people who, uh, you know, almost without exception, you know, ninety nine times out of a hundred, the people that I cross paths with, including a lot of the Republicans, uh, uh, are in it for the right reasons. Are people who are motivated by uh, wanting to, yeah, they have a, a point of view of the world, but but that point of view uh, uh, is about wanting to make the world better for people. Uh, people may differ on what that, you know, the process should be and what the the policy should be, but but are, are motivated by wanting you know positive outcomes, and uh, and so I, I think political consultants are and, and you know people who work in politics, staffers, consultants are are an important part of that. I haven't run across anybody who I think gets into politics, gets into political consulting you know, to be rich, you know, there's certainly people who become wealthy at some point and maybe at some point while they're in politics, they're in consulting, get a little greedy. I don't dispute that, but I don't think that's a motivating factor uh, for most uh, people. It's a job that I, that I think people take on because they want to make the world a better place. They view politics as a good way to do that. And I do think it draws a lot of smart people, especially people who work in national level uh, campaigns, that you know, I just enjoy being around and hearing stories and comparing notes. It makes me smarter and better at my job to be around other people uh, who have thought about these things uh, a lot. So I, I do think, to the degree there is a uh, a reputational uh, uh, shortcoming for the field, uh, you know, I, I certainly can understand why that is the case. Uh, there are certainly you know things that that I can point to that I think various. Uh, practices that are unhelpful that that probably do generate some cynicism, but I, I do think at the end of the day, it's 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 um, people who mean well, who are smart, who are motivated uh, to do the right things. Most of whom who you know came to it in a similar way I did, of falling in love with with politics and seeing it as the best way to get uh, things done. My hats off to anybody on either side who you know makes this their profession, uh, because I do think the ultimate motivation through their lens is, is, is to, is to do, do things, uh, is to make things better for people. Do you think that that way, when you think about the Carl Roves and the Lee Atwaters and, uh, some of the most notorious of the consultants out there that are known, not just for sometimes winning and being strong political minds, but also, of being sneaky or dishonest or uh, or setting the country off on directions that were very unhelpful. My gut is that most people um, are you know are mo- their core motivations are because they think their view of the world is better uh, than than other people's view of the world, and that they're going to make that happen, and that they want to they want to to see that enacted. Certainly, there you know are you know, tactics that are divisive and a lot of people and, and from my perspective much more frequently on the Republican side do things that that I disagree with or think are are shitty or uh, dividing people unnecessarily I mean, Steve, Steve Bannon is a political consultant right right I mean I do think especially like in the era of like the Roves and the Atwaters I do think that a lot of people of that era at least came to politics you know, through the prism of the Cold War and thinking, okay, well, all that matters is that is that our side is that democracy is that market economies, the West emerges over uh, over you know over the Soviet uh, style uh, governance, and so you know the ends justify the means. They feel that Ronald Reagan style policies are better than 
um, you know, I, you know, Tip O'Neill style policies or Walter Mondale policies, whatever the the, the inverse would be, and 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 approach things uh, that way. I do think that the the current you know Trump style um, consultants do give me some some pause. I, I do accept the fact, and I, I think I that that there is you know real sort of racial animus uh, behind some of these folks wanting to you know change the character of the country or protect what they see as the character of the country in a way that is racially motivated uh there's some religious overtones to it as well so i think certainly a lot of people in the trump sphere are bad actors and i i, I think i would i would differentiate them from the lee atwaters or the haley barbers or the um or the uh, you know, folks from that era, Karl Rove, um, you know, who you know often I think use tactics that I would disagree with that are divisive, uh, and and um, and and think they deserve some criticism for that. Uh, but I do think the people around Trump, uh, I think, are a, a different animal. The Bannons of the world, I think, are a different uh, animal in really wanting to, to divide the country and not really being committed to some of the basic democratic norms that I do think that the other. Some of the, the more mainstream Republicans in times past, you know, just viewed as as part of our tradition, and I don't think those are the traditions that the people in the Trump sphere, the Bannons of the world, and the you know Lewandowskis and, and the, the real the real bad people behind Trump, I think don't have those same you know motivations to protect. I guess I find myself feeling a little more critical of the consultants who I think are bad actors and I hear from you, but that's, I mean, I understand also what you're saying about like everybody has their own point of view and it's, if you're operating in that world, that is your point of view, then, then a lot of things follow from that. I've talked a couple times on the show to John Anzalone, who's the founder of your firm and I really uh, enjoyed those conversations. He struck me as having some real wisdom about the Biden campaign, about the country, and kind of a, a level head about things. What, what's your experience, and how do you evaluate him as a leader of a firm and pollster? I think I think a really good combination of you know of book smarts. You know, he's he's a, I think he's a smarter guy than I mean anybody in his level. At his level is going to be very intelligent. People think of him as, as street smart, you know, which he is, and 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 um, you know, really good strategy. But I think actually has you know a better head for some of the stuff we talked about earlier, you know, the, the methodology and the data and the new tactics as well, and an appreciation for them as well. But I think a really good combination of, of book smarts and street smarts, which I think is really what you're looking for in a pollster. And he comes from a working class background in uh, Michigan. Our firm uh, is is not been DC based. Uh, for, we have a DC office, but but our he hasn't been DC based. I do think his roots as somebody in you know, blue collar roots, somebody in the working class of America. He and, and, and myself as well are not part of the 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 the, uh, the, the cycle in DC and the um, and sort of the DC bubble. I do think there is real value there. Uh, and he's just a really hard worker, I think as well. That it always surprised me. He has, you know, I think I'm a hard worker and I, and I am, but he has more going on than I do for a, a lot of things. Plus he has four kids. Plus he has, you know, all sorts of other stuff that I don't have. And he, you know, is, you know, quick on emails and is very engaged and responsive to, to, to clients. So I, I think really a, a, a lot of different components there that really make him a, really what you're looking for in a political consultant and been a, gr a great person to to learn from as well. Who are you currently working for? Who are your key clients in this cycle? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the uh, A couple of governor's races I'm deeply involved in. One is Steve Sisolak in Nevada, somebody who I've been working with as far back as 2008, his first race to be on the Clark County Commission. 10 years after that, 2018, he uh, won election as governor, the first Democrat to win the Nevada governor's office in 20 plus years. So he has, uh, like a lot of incumbent governors, has been put through, put through the ringer. Nevada's always a competitive state. I think people think of Nevada being a little bit more blue 
than it is because Democrats have been winning races there, but we've been winning very close races, winning races by a point or two in 16, 18, 20. I do a lot of work in Minnesota and the progressive table. The Alliance for a Better Minnesota is a longtime client of mine who does a lot of work with, um, uh, and Jeff Ablodgett, who I think is one of your previous uh, guests, helped put a lot of that infrastructure uh, together. But so protecting Governor Walls in Minnesota and as well as the DFL, uh, you know, up and down the ballot uh, in Minnesota is something that I'm, you know, deeply embedded in. You know, I have you know, multiple uh, congressional races. One is going to be a, a primary, it appears. I was you know, proud to be, am proud to be, do the polling for Carolyn Bordeaux, who was the one Democrat who flipped a Republican seat in, how, in the House in 2020. And this is in, in Metro Atlanta. She's actually been drawn into a district uh, or, or the, the, the situation has developed where uh, another incumbent Democrat, Lucy McBath, is coming into her uh, district to run. And we'll see what happens there. That'll be a primary, but have, uh, you know, a couple of good races in Ohio, congressional races in Ohio, you know, one in uh, Montana that is heating up, that is fun. You know, and I usually do some independent expenditure work and uh, other other type work as well. So, you know, have a pretty full dance card as 2022 approaches. What's your ideal client? You know, I really enjoy um, executive races, uh, governor's races, you know, mayor's races, municipal races. Just as a strategist, those are a little less cookie cutter. They're extremely important, and I'm glad to be involved in them. Increasingly, the the issues and the race and the the issues and the ads and the campaigns in a race for House or Senate in Florida don't look that different than a race in. Nevada or in Pennsylvania or in Arizona. Uh, and that's just sort of the reality of our politics. Everything has become more nationalized and especially in federal races. But I do think, you know, governor's races, mayor's races are races where campaigns, where personalities matter more, where policies matter more, where uh, you can put together uh, different types of coalitions uh, where voters are more willing to you know, cross party lines than they are at the federal race. In municipal races, uh, often those are nonpartisan and really can be pretty creative in trying to build your coalition in a race uh, for mayor. Uh, so I, I enjoy those. And I do think, you know, as somebody who grew up in the Deep South, I always enjoy when uh, there is uh, a Democrat who um, has a chance to win in tough turf in, in the South. Uh, Governor John Bell Edwards of Louisiana is not up for re-election. Uh, he won re-election 2019, so he's he's uh, term limited, but was a, a, you know, always a, a fun race that I, I worked with in both uh, cycles to, 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 to find a way to pick the lock in a state that's a 60-40 Trump state. I'm proud to have been you know part of that. And he was he is somebody, and I don't have the number committed to memory, but on his first day when after he was elected governor, he signed an order that expanded Medicaid in Louisiana and, you know, 400,000 or something uh, people have health care because he was elected because he could do it through the, the governor's office that didn't have to go through the legislature. So I like working outside of the South. I don't want to be sort of stuck in the Southern ghetto and only working in the South. And I'm, 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 I'm uh, uh, glad that I have a client base that lets me do that. But when there's a good race to be done uh, in the deep South, I always enjoy being a part of it. Have you developed sort of a personal philosophy of campaigning that you sort of apply? There must be things that are kind of the go-to things that you end up saying or uh, thinking about how you win in a particular type of race. What comes to mind when you think about that? It's become controversial over the last you know few cycles to be focused on you know sort of people in the middle and persuadable voters and uh, independent-minded voters. And I certainly am a believer in using tools and resources that are available to uh, to help turn out Democratic voters and base voters. And I'm a, I'm a believer in that. But I do think, you know, more often than not, elections are won on the margins. Uh, and I do think, you know, always having a profile in mind of who your target voter is. And maybe you have a target persuasion and a target turnout voter. In Nevada, you know, a, a 45-year-old uh, Latina uh, who doesn't have a college degree, who you know doesn't work, uh, you know actually for uh, a casino, uh, a, a resort, but is is connected somehow to the industry. I think when you sort of put a human face, even if it's um, an abstract, away on 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 who your 
trying to be talking to two or three different types of profiles. I do think that helps uh, crystallize some messaging decisions and strategic decisions. You know, we're not trying to talk to the entire state. We're not trying to talk to, you know, 5 million people. We're trying to talk to sort of these one or two profiles that, you know, that the campaign data uh, and the campaign itself has decided is really important. So I do think that's an exercise that is helpful. I do think at the end of the day, when you look at, you know, when Democrats have been successful in, in, in uh, uh, big presidential races, uh, when uh, in 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 races down ballot, I do think being able to deliver uh, real things for people becomes important. So the idea of just saying, you know, hey, Hillary Clinton talked about a bunch of issues, therefore we should never talk about issues uh, for the next decade, I think is is um, is misplaced. You know, you don't want to go give people white paper lectures about issues, and you know, we don't need to have manifestos that run pages and pages, but being very clear about uh, how a Democratic candidate is going to make your lives better. They're going to raise teacher pay. Uh, we're going to raise the minimum wage. We're going to expand health care. All of those things, I think, are pretty important uh, uh, to, to deliver. And I think to, in some places that has fallen out of fashion, that the Democrats need to be very clear as to what we are delivering for people. So those are those are a couple of things that I don't think are you know controversial or I've or I've cracked the code on, but I, I do think I've uh, you know developed a pretty clear uh, way to think about those things. Why did you start a podcast? Given the background that we talked about, I was always interested in it, when I was around other political consultants, and I'm probably in the middle age of you know the average political consultant, but especially when I was younger in the field, always enjoyed being around, you know, older political consultants, veteran political consultants, maybe the more polite way to, to phrase it, people who were, you know, had been, you know, in the trenches for, for decades and decades, and always enjoyed sort of hearing their stories. But even people I was around frequently, or would be around for long meetings, or would be on email chains for 18 months about races, never really was able to, um, to pick their brains and, 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 and hear some of the old stories and how they got into the business. So that was always sort of floating around, you know, a little bit. Um, uh, you know, I, you know, I don't, I'm not religious to the Mark Maron uh, podcast, but he sort of does a little bit, that, a little bit of that. And the, and the Hollywood thing, even more uh, uh, obscure is, you know, Gilbert Gottfried has a podcast and he's sort of the comic relief, but he has a, a guy on his podcast with him who's a, t- a TV writer and they'll find up these old, you know, Hollywood figures who were you know, in their 60s or 70s or 80s and get these sort of old golden age Hollywood stories from them. So those were on my radar. And then I happened to be one day, this was pretty close before the pandemic started. I was on an airplane uh, seated next to Richard Shelby, who's a U.S. senator, who I don't really know. I'd met him before. He didn't have any reason to remember that. But I literally sat next to him on a plane for a couple of hours and he was polite and just sort of let me throw names at him. I said, hey, what was Ted Kennedy like? Or, hey, uh, you know, what was the deal when you switched parties? Or, uh, you know, why did you run for Senate and not governor? Or uh, that kind of thing. And he was very, very polite and told me some stories, some stories that I was uh, surprised that he told me, given that he uh, didn't know me that well. Uh, and I had identified myself as a Democratic political consultant. But And so that, you know, sort of got my wheels going. And during the pandemic, when we were all, um, you know, less so now, thankfully, when we were all hostages in our own home for the most part. Uh, I thought that could be fun to get, you know, political consultants or political figures, people who've been successful in politics, and just, you know, sort of hear some of their stories. What got them, certainly plenty of overlap with what you do, Nathaniel, but what got them into politics, you know, key moments, you know, some of the, the fun war stories. I do a little bit of of trying to ask them to give advice to other people or to be forward looking as well, but that's actually just me trying to make it sort of more useful. Given my um, preferences, I would just as soon hear people tell sort of good war stories for for, for an hour. So I, I do it once a week. I've I, you know had all sorts of different people. You and I have had a lot of the same people uh, as, as well, uh, and if I just had a, a lot of a lot of fun with it. And you know, it's um, you know it's a niche podcast in a niche market. Uh, but, you know, have had, you know, people respond well to it. And and w- what surprised me uh, uh, is how is that people, for the most part, are happy enough to do it with me. We're all sort of egomaniacs and want to hear ourselves talk. Uh, uh, so people are, are happy to uh, almost everybody that I've asked has been happy enough 
uh, to do it uh, for me. So yeah, I've had fun with it. And it's been an opportunity to hear some some stories and that I never heard and, you know, some wisdom. Uh, you know, some people that I had been around uh, a long time with, I, I have one, we mentioned John Anzalone, I have one coming out in the next couple of weeks with John Anzalone, who I've been around in, intimately for 15, 16 years. And he was telling me stories about he and Joe Biden that I'd never heard in his early days around Joe Biden that I never heard before. And then a lot of people who I didn't actually have a relationship with, but was able to, to spend some time with. So it's, it's, it's a hobby. Um, but it goes back to sort of the kid who, uh, found the, the almanac of American politics and wanted to absorb as much of it as I could. And I do think a lot of people in the political consulting industry have great stories, uh, to tell. Uh, and I sort of like to have them as, you know, little time capsules, uh, uh, about people who've been successful in politics. Do you think it helps you market your services, strengthen relationships in the industry, assist you on the business side? I, you know, I, I think it probably does. I don't know that I could point to anything. I'm right about a year into it. I don't think I could point to anything specific, say, okay, well, this I've gotten because, you know, I've, I've, I've started this podcast. I think it certainly gets my name out there a little bit, which, you know, I'm not going to say it was like a downside. I was happy enough to do that. You were much more in a listener vein. Uh, you, you're a good listener. You enjoy listening. You don't put a ton of yourself, uh, you know, into the podcast. And I actually try to do that as well. I actually will, in the course of, of conversations with people, um, you know, there might be a little bit more repartee. I might give sort of my two cents about something when we're recording, but a lot of times I'll even go out and sort of edit that out because, you know, I, I'm not asking people to, to listen because I have something interesting to say. It's because I, I want them to hear from the guest. So actually it's not the kind of thing where I'm giving my two cents about things or trying to sound smart. I generally try to fade into the background uh, versus, you know, a podcast where it's, hey, here's my take on the issue du jour uh, 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 each um, each week. Hopefully there's there's some there's some benefit. But, you know, I don't know that I have ever said anything on my podcast that would make somebody think, oh, this guy's, you know, really smart. Do you listen to other political podcasts? Oh, yeah, certainly yours has been one I've been familiar with for quite some uh, time. I do think what makes mine a little unique uh, is to be, you know, very uh, rear view uh, focused. And uh, there's certainly no shortage of places to get the issue du jour. Uh, I, David Axelrod and Mike Murphy uh, have Hacks on Tap, which I think is really, I think both those guys are really smart and they really dig into the issue of the day. I do think, uh, and again, this is another place where you and I overlap. I do think there's value uh, in in my case, it's sort of accidental, but try to have an, something that's pretty evergreen, uh, sort of the time capsule uh, um, um, uh, type approach. No matter how interesting or smart a discussion is about, hey, is near attendant going to be the next OMB director? No matter how interesting that is in the moment, I think it ages pretty quickly, and and there's not a ton of uh, of utility for that. A week or two after it's happened, not you know a a, a rabid listener of political podcasts, I, it did feel to me like there was, you know, a little bit, you know, of a vacuum of talking to people from both sides. Again, I'm a Democrat, as we've discussed, but I talked to Republicans as well. I don't feel obligated to do 50-50 Rep Democrats, Republicans, but try to talk to, you know, some Republicans as well. I mean, you mentioned Michael Barone, who's more conservative leaning now, but but Haley Barber and former Congresswoman Ileana Ross-Leighton and, you know, as well as Republican consultants who are in the trenches now, some of whom are working for clients who are running against my clients, people who are active in things now to try to find, you know, the best of what politics, you know, can offer. And frankly, just sort of hear some interesting stories is really what I was after. How do you prepare for an interview? I try to start with some of the same uh, questions. There's a little bit of overlap, um, it, from episode to episode, I will start in a similar way. I'll end in a similar way often, but I will look at, you know, their, their bio or get their bio from them and just sort of pick out the things I think are interesting. I also enjoy so, some of the different jobs that they've had and see if I can glean, you know, what they think makes a good campaign manager, what they think makes a good uh, comms person, different places they've been geographically, how they think about politics in Maine versus New Mexico, because I started this, you know, with no expectations, which have largely been met. I'm not trying to make any 
any money off of this and, you know, a very low barrier to entry for podcasting. I have a $70 microphone and, you know, a $5 sound clip that I found. So I don't feel obligated to try to monetize it, especially trying to, you know, not only just default to, hey, tell me your best campaign war stories, but try to get a little a little stuff out there for people, you know, including myself, but especially people younger in the business to try to learn from people who've been successful. What do you do to promote the episodes? How do you get them out there? Oh, gosh, I'm not, a, not a ton, really. I put it on Twitter. Oh, I do send out, and I have a, I guess what you'd call it a newsletter. I do it through Substack. I just pulled the, uh, which may be uh, hopefully not against Substack guidelines, but I just sort of pulled the emails that were floating around in my own personal email uh, um, folders and, you know, and um, was, was nice enough to start spamming people, th- those people about my, my podcast each week. And so I'll, I'll send out an email, I'll put it on, on Twitter. I don't know how unusual this is, but one of the things that I do enjoy seeing is over time, even an episode that's, uh, you know, that first came out nine months ago, seeing people still sort of finding older episodes so even if they're not getting them in the moment, uh, that, that people may be backtrack and find some of those. But if people want to sort of give it a, a look, you know, I'm just trying to think of some good episodes. I talked to Paul Bagala in a very early episode, a Republican consultant, Mike Murphy, Ellen Malcolm, who started Emily's List, Stephen Smith, who's a digital consultant, most famously with the Buddha Judge campaign, I thought was a real powerhouse. Loretta Sanchez, a former Democratic congresswoman, I thought was a fun episode here more recently. So, you know, people could just scroll through the the episodes and see who who they know or who they'd be interested to hear from and get get a sense of one. You know, um, is there like, how do you draw the boundary around who you would have as a guest? Who would you not want? Anybody that's sort of too close to the Trump uh, the Trump inner circle, you know, on paper, you know, I'm sure has interesting thoughts and interesting stories and, and, and are probably smart people, but that would give me some, some pause. I'll say that. Yeah, I say that though, but I do think, you know, Trump's pollster, Tony Fabrizio, maybe would be somebody who I would be interested in talking with. So yeah, I don't know that I have any, 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 um, hard and fast rules. I try to make sure to, to reflect the breadth of the industry and, uh, I could always do a better job, but make sure that I'm talking not just to a bunch of old white guy media consultants, um, which would be tempting, and which is sort of the people initially. I was thinking, okay, it'd be it'd be fun to hear Saul Shore talk about who's a media consultant talk about his his way in the business, or David Dixon, or Jim Margolis, and the, those were actually some of the people initially that I was just sort of popping in my mind. I do find that media consultants are often natural storytellers, maybe to the degree that, that some of the rest of us in the business are not. But I do try to be be um, cognizant of that uh, and and get people from from different walks of life. That's, I, I think, something I would like to do a little bit better job on is just getting, you know, and I don't have a, a list in mind, but people who do, who do different jobs and, um, and uh, you know, not just sort of the consultants, you know, that, that do the kind of thing I do, but people who are executive directors who started organizations or who are out in the States as opposed to more federal focused or, um, you know, have a little different, uh, a little different uh, mission uh, uh, as opposed to just purely defaulting to, you know, sort of campaign hacks like, uh, like myself. You've been doing this political consulting game for a long time now. Do you think that we're in a substantially different era of politics since Trump than we were before? Or do you think it's basically the same thing? No, I, I, I think it is. I think it is different. If you think it's different, um, how do you change how you advise or do you as a result? Yeah. I mean, I do think it is different. Yeah. I think the, the symptoms and the cause of Trump maybe was sort of building over time and Trump has weaponized it uh, finally. But I cut my teeth in races working for, you know, moderate Democrats in the Southeast and a lot of my client base, you know, it's runs the gamut ideologically, but, you know, my own politics are pretty moderate. So I'm not alarmist by nature, but I do think we're facing a, a real by God, you know, threat with with Trump and, and what he represents in our democracy is really in peril. And I think we saw how rickety it was uh, in, in, in 2020. Uh, with every indication that it was like in Jurassic Park where the raptors attack the fence and they get shocked and then they attack a different part of the fence until they find a weak link. It, it feels to me like that's 
what a lot of the Trump folks are doing. So I do think that's real. I don't I don't hand wave that away. So I think the the stakes maybe are higher uh, than we've ever seen, even if the politics themselves don't look all that different. In terms of advising candidates, I I, I don't know that the, the nuts and bolts of winning or running a race is all that different. I wish there was a uh, a little bit more unanimity on on our side, on the progressive side. But given the the stakes, given the people on the other side, uh, uh, given Trump, given given Trump and Trumpism and what that represents, it's vexing to me and frustrating that we find ourselves uh, with all this internecine you know debates and. Um, it feels to me like we should be a little scared straight and let's dispatch with Trump first and then we can all sort of go, uh, you know, argue over shades of gray. And I do think this maybe would be a criticism of political consultants that I didn't offer earlier, who I generally think are, um, you know, are, are in it for the right reasons. We've just gotten so good at sort of touching raw nerves. And again, I think this is something Republicans probably are better at than Democrats and got better at early than Democrats, but so good at touching raw nerves, largely on cultural issues, identity issues, and inflaming uh, people. Uh, And I I do think that sort of division that that causes, um, and people can justify that in any given campaign or to go raise money in an email or get people to sign a petition so they can capture your email so they can make you uh, hopefully get some some money from you. Uh, But I I do think that the aftershocks of that are toxic. And I think we're we're sort of grappling with that as well. And, you know, when I think about Democrats having difficulties competing in places where we used to win, you know, reddish states, purplish states, the, uh, you know, sort of the white non-college voter who was never with Democrats on cultural issues largely, but we were able to make a case to economically uh, both sides have just gotten so good at touching raw nerves on cultural issues that I think is where a lot of the current polarization uh, comes from. I mean, if if we are, as I think we both believe in a time of some serious peril, what is it going to take for the people who are advising the practitioners of our in our democracy, the politicians, to say, really even to the other side also like, Hey, things are really getting out of hand here. Um, you know, that there's a, there's an association of political consultants, you know, there's like, there's responsibility that goes well past your responsibility to a campaign and goes to your responsibility to the country. I would say that to any politician or consultant or, a citizen in a certain way. I feel like it's not sinking in fully how dangerous it is. Do you disagree? No, I, I don't disagree. One of the things that scares me about 2022, you know, of course, Democrats are facing real headwinds. I'm not, I'm not Pollyannish about that. I think there's, you know, all the, many of the normal metrics, you know, would say, or the most important metric that Biden's job approval in the low 40s, you know, you know, mid 40s generously, uh, usually equates to the out party having a really good uh, midterm. I'm not head in the sand on that. But even in the Republican Party, uh, you know, even even assuming you're going to replace some Democrats with Republicans uh, during in the 2022 midterms, I worry that within the Republican Party, you know, the, the people who are semi-responsible actors are being replaced with people uh, coming out of primaries who are just who can be more uh, more of a toady for for Trump and what Trump represents. And so the Rob Portmans of the world, uh, the Pat Toomey's, Richard Shelby from Alabama, um, you know, in the previous cycle, Bob Corker from Tennessee and Jeff Flake. And it's not even moderate in an ideological sense, but the uh, Republicans who are just more responsible actors being replaced with Republicans who I don't know what they're what they're believed deep down in their bones, but are, are coming to power based on their ability to to mimic and ape what Trump is and what Trump is is saying. So that's part of the the stew that makes 2022 very dangerous. But at some point in the future, have a Republican Congress with a with a President Trump or somebody whose motive has similar motivations to Trump uh, that doesn't run into some of the same headwinds. It doesn't run into the John McCain's of the world and some of the the, the roadblocks that, that that maybe checked Trump at times, I think that gets really, really scary quickly, uh, not just on the policy front, which I don't want to undersell 
as well, but gets very scary on on what it means for our our democracy and some of our fundamental rights. I don't know that I have great answers on what we should do. I don't I don't think that other consultants or voters certainly sort of want to be lectured uh, about it and, and 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 for whatever reason are not digesting it as a as a real clear and present danger. I wish I had a better answer on how to do that. We see that with with January 6th, which to me and to many people I know was you know a watershed moment that you can't unsee. Whereas you know I've seen this in some focus groups um, in the last few months, a lot of average voters who are not Trump people, but sort of shrug and say, "Yeah, I didn't like that, but what's the big deal? What's moving on?" You know, you know, my pork chops cost a little more this week than they did a month ago, and that's what they're more concerned about. And so I don't know that I have good 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 answers for for how to recenter that conversation. I mean, do you think part of the problem could be that we look to polls to figure out what to say rather than figure out what to say based on what's right? I mean, I do think in general, we're an over-polled country. I think there's just too many polls out there. But I'm talking about, I'm talking about like in campaign strategy, like you, like you could, you, I mean, I, I, and I have no expertise in this particularly and I know, and I defer to you on it, but it seems to me like if you're, if you're doing a focus group and people say, uh, you know, January 6th didn't seem to matter much. And then you make the decision, we're not going to campaign on that. That kind of means collectively we might be making the decision not to educate the population about why it was important. And the other side is assiduously pushing the propaganda around that moment and using it to motivate their base and to mislead a substantial proportion of the country around something as fundamental. Do we do what seems to work on a very tactical level or do we think about the big strategy or do we think about like what, what we need to do to, to converse with the electorate broadly and try to teach them what is at stake? I mean, I just wonder about that big kind of big problem. There is this, there is this conflict between what is the best decision for the question you pose in an individual campaign, in an individual state, in an individual cycle. And I think in, in that respect, if, I mean, to pull uh, somebody I'm not, you know, don't have any connection with, if you're a Democrat running for Senate in Missouri, which would be a, a Republican-oriented state, uh, if we could somehow win the Missouri Senate race and that all of a sudden, uh, you know, gives us a seat that we sort of, quote unquote, shouldn't have, becomes, you know, really important mathematically. And I think we probably are better able to win that seat uh, uh, a lot has to go right, but but probably better able to win that seat if if that election does not seem like it's a referendum on on Trump or January sixth or sort of these big macro concerns and is more about you know do you like this candidate more than that candidate and a, a Democrat who's sort of a different kind of Democrat. But then don't we always end up with this like this campaign, especially in a in a cycle where we're on the defense, which is highly likely. Then we are running away from the president. We are campaigning on individual characteristics. The other side is nationalizing it. We're failing to nationalize it around the stuff that matters, the big stuff where we are actually fully in the right because we're afraid that we'll just go under with the wave and maybe rightly. I mean, it just feels like there's a there's a collective action problem that we haven't solved I'm not saying you have the solution or anyone has a solution, but it's it's troubling. Yeah, I mean, when you when you have an incumbent Democratic president at 42 percent approval, then I think that's a tough ask to ask members of Congress or anybody running for office in 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 most of the country to want to make these big questions part of the uh, debate versus you know more micro uh, discussions about what can be uh, what can be done. And Republicans had to deal with this in the inverse in 2018. Of course, and this is usually talked about in a way that's a good thing is that democratic politics is sort of bottom up. That's sort of what we all want politics to be bottom up, not top down. I do think there could be we're in a place where maybe some more top down uh, unanimity would be valuable. And I do think um, the progressive uh, space overall there's so many different entities, and I, this may be a consequence of campaign finance or digital fundraising. People, you know, being able to raise money, low dollar 
money that they weren't before. There are you know dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of progressive groups steering their own ship. And I think in many times, you know, whether they intentionally do it or not, sort of, you know, moss to the flame, trying to find sort of their own uh, their own oxygen uh, here. And maybe they're going, you know, off and, and, and talking about something that is not helpful to the broader to the broader movement. And so I do think that and I, whereas I think Republicans, you think the RNC, you, you think the Koch brothers and you think Grover Norquist and you think a handful of Republican and actors. And you think Fox News and you think Fox Breitbart, News yeah. that, that can impose some message discipline on the right at the same time where you have, you know, every every week there's sort of a new and again, the, I think these are people who mean well and are doing good work probably. But, you know, how many different groups are talking about climate? How many different groups are talking about choice? How many different groups, you know, pop up because somebody ran for office, has a big lost, has a big email list and wants to find something to do with it. And they go start sort of a new group. And I think it makes it much difficult to get the type of message. It's not even message discipline, just message cohesion uh, that that we see on the right. There are probably some good things to having all those people doing good work. But I do think there are some some negative consequences uh, that then make it difficult for for our side uh, to be able to fight back effectively. There isn't a chief propagandist for our side. There, you know, if there is, you know, you maybe you'd be in the White House right now, but it's not entirely clear that that bullhorn is blasting at full strength. Another place where that can be situated is among political consultants, is among people who are advising candidates about what to say. How much do you talk to competing firms, other consultants about this? How much is there coordination or is there none? No, there's a lot of coordination in terms of what we're seeing. You know, political consulting, unlike some, uh, you know, some uh, fields is something where plagiarism is a good thing. You know, if, if a message and a, and a tactic and something is helping elect Democrats and, and help helping a Democrat in, in one place is something we at least often want to sort of put on the docket and see, okay, is that something that can be useful here? It, which leads to some of the cookie cutter type phenomenon I talked about earlier. Uh, but if, if the upshot is that that's electing more people that from my perspective should be elected then that's a good thing. There are some efforts, I think, to, to try to tackle some of these, um, these big, these big tactical decisions, these big strategic decisions, but, you know, ultimately campaigns as well as the consultants uh, that, that are involved with them, we're sort of all on our own pirate ship doing our own thing. And, um, and it's difficult to sort of bring, uh, you know, people together. I mean, in, in a collegial sense where we're all collegial and want to pay attention to what other people are doing, but it's all, you, you know, have been trained the sort of what is right for my candidate in the moment, what puts a fingernail on the scale today to help my candidate uh, win uh, an election and these bigger tactical issues, these bigger strategic issues that are really existential at some level uh, are frankly, um, in, maybe to the to the discredit of the, of the field or something that are often uh, on the back burner understanding there are some people and, you know, Michael Podhorser at the AFL-CIO is an example about somebody who does do some big thinking on this and tries to convene elements within the political consulting industry to try to better understand this. But in, then the question is, even if you sort of understand the right message and what should be said, how do you even weaponize it? Where do you go from there? Uh, which I think is the harder question. Well, it turned into an interesting conversation around this, and I appreciate you being willing to go there with me. I wonder if there's another question that I failed to ask you that, that you think I should have. Oh, you know, I, I could certainly give sort of an optimistic uh, take on, on, you know, for 2022, sort of what what Democrats could be, uh, you know, why 2022 could be a little bit better for Democrats than we're thinking, but only if you think that is a, a fit into what you're looking. Why didn't give me a really succinct version of that? Well, I think it was sort of, you know, one is is the the economic stuff is, is turning around a little bit to the Republicans are, um, uh, as we saw in 2010 and 2012, uh, when Republicans fumbled away several Senate seats uh, by nominating really bad candidates. Maybe they'll some, nominate the Greitens of the world. Yeah, there, there's that. And then, you know, three, you have redistricting, which, you know, has... Um, um, has uh, gone much better for Democrats than certainly I would have anticipated. Uh, so that's a you know handful of seats. So those are sort of the three legs of the stool. Sort of one macro about you know some of the green shoots, the mask mandates coming down, economic numbers perking up. 
I do think there's going to be, it won't be built back better, but I do think you'll see some legislation pass, which gives Democrats more micro messaging, you know, elements of build back better that are passed. And in and, and some of these, these more um, process things about the, the uh, redistricting in the Republican primaries. Thank you uh, for taking the time. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, no. Thanks, Nathaniel. Thanks for letting me come on. Thanks for being a groundbreaker uh, in this space. And I continue to be a fan and continue to look through your uh, five years of uh, episodes to see for people I want to steal for my own podcast. That would be fair game. That was Zach McCrary. Zach is at impactresearch.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.